0: Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. How will we all keep busy when we only have to work 15 hours a week? That's the question the great economist John Maynard Keynes asked nearly 90 years ago, thinking ahead to the possibilities of his grandchildren. By the end of the 20th century, he thought the economy would be so productive, we'd scarcely have to work at all. Uh, it didn't work out that way. The economy is a lot more productive, and we do spend a lot less time collectively on chores like washing clothes and dishes, collecting water. But in most advanced economies, the daily grind, if anything, has become even grindier. So much for modern technology letting us all spend more time in the garden or at the opera. But that might all be about to change, In a minute, I'm going to talk about a possible revolution in our work week with one of Bloomberg's most read economic columnists, Noah Smith. I'll also be checking in on the latest on the US trade wars. But first, here's UK Treasury reporter Jess Shankelman to tell us what's been happening in the
1: UK. What if you never went to work on a Friday? Not because you're ill or pretending to be. Not because you have to look after the kids or because you're on vacation. This is the four-day week. And maybe, just maybe, it could be coming to your workplace. For lighting designers Electra in London, it became a reality at the start of this year when they stopped working Fridays and added an extra hour to Monday through Thursdays. Director Neil Knowles now spends his newly extended weekends perfecting his sourdough bread and visiting galleries. One of his colleagues has taken up welding. He says output has remained broadly the same and both his team and his clients are happy with the switch.
2: I think the biggest surprise would be quite how much difference it makes personally. It makes, it's not, I think think it's gonna make a little bit of difference going from two-day weekends to three, but actually it makes an enormous difference, massive difference.
1: In the UK, it's something Jeremy Corbyn's opposition Labour Party is looking at in a bid to kickstart productivity and boost well-being. The idea is just one of a series of radical left-wing economic policies that increased Corbyn's popularity since the financial crash, an event that caused people to question the fairness of capitalism. Some of his other ideas include nationalising utilities, giving employees a stake in large companies, and delisting businesses from the stock exchange if they don't do enough to tackle climate change. John McDonnell, Labour's economic spokesman, who commissioned a review into the idea, thinks shorter working weeks would be a vote winner. The influential grassroots socialist group called Momentum ...wants Labour to adopt a four-day week as an official policy in its next manifesto... ...and with the ruling Conservative Party in turmoil over its failure to deliver on Brexit... ...a general election seems perpetually on the horizon. I asked John McDonnell recently in Parliament about his latest thoughts on a four-day week.
2: It's about making sure that people have a quality of life, a work-life balance and it's all levels, uh, and I think the, the way in which we can shape the work and we can be more flexible about it, I think will be incredibly popular.
1: Since the Industrial Revolution, the length of the work week has taken centre stage in labour relations. In the 1860s, workers averaged about 60 or 70 hours a week, and that gradually fell to about 40 hours a week, thanks to improvements in labour laws and technology. Now the question of workers' rights is coming back into the spotlight. Part of the reason, workers could be left behind amid greater automation and use of technology. The consultancy McKinsey estimates 40% of all hours worked today could be automated using already existing technologies. The Trade Union Congress, an umbrella group for unions, ...wants workers as well as companies to reap the benefits of enhanced productivity from robots. The group says the march of technology so far seems to have increased hours rather than cutting them back. So employers increasingly expect people to log on at all times of the day... ...and as a result it says British workers currently rack up £32 billion of unpaid overtime... ...or about $40 billion dollars. Here's the Trade Union Congress's Kate Bell. We're calling for shorter working time with no loss of pay. But I think it is important to remember the context we're talking about this in. You know, we're hearing all these kind of promises about new technology, you know, that it's going to give a significant boost to our GDP. We've got people like Jeff Bezos saying that he's got so much money, the only thing he can think to do with it is to put a man on the moon. You know, we are talking about the possibility of getting richer. And what we knows happened historically over kind of, you know, in the last Industrial Revolution was when trade unions fought for it, we were able to deliver higher pay and shorter working time. So that's very much our goal. Labour asked Robert Skidelsky, an economist at the University of Warwick, best known for his biography of John Maynard Keynes, to study if and how the government could cut the working week. And his report is set to be published in July. He doesn't think capping working hours across the economy is the answer, as France's plural left party did at the turn of the century. Instead, he says the UK government should set an example as an employer, He found investing in automation and improving flexibility in the civil service, health service and schools could be a starting point. By now, Skidelsky says, people in Britain should be working about 32 or 33 hours a week. But actually, those hours stopped falling in the 1980s. So does that mean a more drastic approach from politicians could hold the key?
2: The question to to, to raise is what
3: are the most effective forms of government intervention in order to move the whole economy to, you know, to increase the density of automation. Well, the government can do something in the public sector. It's the employer. And it's got a workforce. And, um, you know, there are there are 7 million, 7 million public public sector employees, it's about 25% of the workforce, you can start doing something
2: there.
1: Don't start planning your long weekends quite yet, though. He's keen to avoid the trap of using the term four-day week and says we need to think about shorter working hours overall. So that could mean a parent working smarter than leaving at three in the afternoon so they can pick up their children from school not just everyone having Fridays off and the economy virtually shutting down. You've got to
3: organise in such a way, and I know it's difficult, uh, and, and it, may be, it may be that there are costs to this. You've got to organise in such a way that the service isn't interrupted because people aren't, uh, people aren't at, at work.
1: And key to making all of this work is increased investment in technologies that can do monotonous and repetitive tasks freeing people up to spend more time on innovation and creative thinking. That might help boost productivity in Britain, where the metric is among the worst in Europe. The average American worker gets as much done by Thursday afternoon as their British counterpart currently does in an entire week, according to the International Monetary Fund. The nation also has the lowest use of robots in manufacturing of any G10 country. But despite promises for getting a better work-life balance, shorter working hours don't necessarily boost the economy. The UK's biggest business lobby group, the Confederation of British Industry, isn't convinced a rigid reduction in hours will help productivity or work's well-being. Rain Newton-Smith, the CBI's chief economist, said forcing everyone to move to compressed hours could make it harder for people to have the work-life balance they want or need. Back at Electra, the lighting design company, Neil Knowles says the decision to shift to a four-day week wasn't easy. It does mean, as the CPI says, less flexibility on the days they are at work.
2: So there was a lot of sorting out when we started it, um, which we kind of started in about January, February this year. A lot of discussion on... Um, things and a lot of kind of agreement on on things, for example, like we don't let people take time off to get deliveries, which used to be, used to be fairly small. We're kind of flexible. People say, you know, I'm getting a I don't know, washing machine delivered, kind of coming two hours late. The answer is now, no, you can't. Do it on Friday. If you want to go to the dentist, do it on Friday.
1: And while it might work for their small company, Four-day weeks may not be so easy to implement in a restaurant or a shop, he says.
2: The answer would be it works for consultancy companies where you've got an output that you're charging for, but if you're charging for your time rather than for your services, it's not gonna work for you. Yeah? Yeah. So it works for the professional classes, which is nice for us, isn't it? <laughs>
1: For Bloomberg News, I'm Jess Shankelman.
0: Well, I was quite happy to have that segment because it reminds listeners that there are some people who are occasionally getting to talk about things other than Brexit in the UK. But the idea of a four-day week and having more flexibility around working patterns is also something you hear a lot in the US. And I wanted to talk about the economics of it and the possible implications of all that, with one of uh, our most read economic columnists, Noah Smith. Um, Noah, uh, you've written a bit about issues related to this. I mean, do you think it's the future that more companies will move to a four-day week or some version of that?
3: You know, it's a really good question. I think that what you've seen in European countries that have sort of forced uh, their people to take lots of vacation You've seen a rise in productivity per hour, which makes sense because number one, you need to get more stuff done within the small time allotted. Number two, you're just more sort of alert. the The question is whether a four day work week is actually the right way to accomplish that, or whether it would be um, better to do sort of shorter working days across the work week. Because you know, I, I liken it to um, you know, full year school versus year round school. Uh, I think that. The United States has very long summer vacations in school, and sometimes, yeah, you know, there's research showing this is bad, and basically people start forgetting. So there's the question of, will constant three-day weekends cause people to, you know, sort of get out of the rhythm of working and really hate coming back to work on Monday? Um, would it be better to simply have shorter working days and more, you know, sort of vacation days out of the year? And I think that's a debate that people are going to have. Another possibility is to have a four-day work week, but have only a two-day weekend and then another uh, off day in the middle of the week. So that's another model people could experiment with. And I think people are going to experiment with these models because we haven't seen a, a much of a hit to GDP per person from, you know, sort of shorter work weeks over the years. and uh, And I think people are realizing that it can boost productivity too. How does that sound?
0: Although some of the people who are, are being who are earning the most, uh, we know are also the people who are doing the the longest uh, hours. So somehow it doesn't always um, work out. People don't seem to make that choice, or at least they're they're choosing jobs that have um, that have the money, and then they're not able to sort of trade the money against um, the hours. But it does sound like you think there is a kind of economic free lunch somewhere here, whether it's a four day week or shorter hours that you could have uh, quite dramatic changes to our sort of nine to five, five day a week culture, or even the bit, the longer hours that lots of us have got used to working um, without having a significant hit to the economy and maybe making people happier into the bargain.
3: That's absolutely right. You know, the, the key to getting a free lunch is to stop throwing away your lunch. I always say, <laughs> and you know, I, I've, I've studied Japan a bit and lived there and It's almost certainly true that Japanese people at many, many companies work much longer than is necessary for productivity, and the reason that they do is because of, you know, essentially poor management. Management doesn't know how to evaluate their work output, so instead it simply evaluates their work input, so staying there at your computer till late at night doing essentially useless busy work is counted as work when in fact nothing is getting done, because that's the only way that managers know how to monitor it. And so the Japanese government has been trying to, to crack down on that. The question is where a country falls along spectrum. I mean, obviously, if you in, it enforce a one-day work week, then nobody's going to be able to get their work done, and companies are going to have big problems because they're going to have to hire many more people to do tiny fragmented days of work, and there's going to be just mass confusion and chaos and unproductivity. <laughs> so there's there's a happy medium in there in each country, and to a certain extent, each company really has to find it We have these mechanisms that push against finding that happy medium because everybody wants to look good for the boss. You know, everyone wants to look like they're putting in uh, a a lot of hours, especially when there's you know a recession or a weak economy. People don't want to be the first to get fired, so they're all sort of competing with each other to look like they're putting in the you know they're they're burning the midnight oil. And so, I think you know it does take government to sort of you know push against these things. One, One other possible plan that I didn't mention is to. To go to a four day work week temporarily during recessions to encourage companies to retain staff and encourage them not to do layoffs because layoffs are very damaging and disruptive. And
0: that, that does happen in Germany. Oh, really? Uh, well, places where you have closer relationships between the unions and the particular factories or the companies, you can often have shared limit- limiting of hours. In, in exchange for uh, holding on to more more people. That's been, over the years, that's been something that unions have negotiated. One of the reasons why sometimes you feel like unions can actually play a positive role as, as well as sometimes a negative one. Um, but it sounds, I mean, it, so you actually think the government could sort of play a positive nudge role here and help people to solutions that the market wouldn't necessarily lead to?
3: Well, I definitely do. But, you know, there's a caution, which is that, you know, the hammer and nail problem, when, when all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And there's the possibility that sort of overzealous bureaucrats will simply say, okay, well, you know, because this works sometimes, it works all the time, and we should just restrict people from working as much as possible. And I think that very quickly degenerates into this, this negative one-size-fits-all solution that would then end up, you know, hurting more than it helps. Uh, the other the other uh, problem is ideology. If you have a, a government that's ideologically committed to the idea of of you know, forcing people to work less, work is bad, we should lead lives of leisure, or simply the more rules we can make, the better, well, then that's a danger too. And, and that's, you know, I certainly worry about this in the context of Bernie Sanders and, and some of his allied people in the United States. And I don't know as much about Corbyn in the UK, but I'd say you might want to think about is this move being done for ideological reasons or, you know, is it really being done for
0: practice? <laughs> There's an interesting form here because the labor when the Labour Party came in in the 70s, they created the May Day Bank Holiday in the UK, which previously we'd had across Europe, but not in the UK. Uh, so there's a ah. sense in which they're also just trying to recreate the idea of giving everyone a holiday. Um, right. But I think there is also, there's a kind of, I've seen some work by unions, but also some academics uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, which talks about this in a slightly different way and says, uh, we should see it as a potential opportunity for workers to have more of the benefits of the coming automation revolution. So instead of just a chunk of workers losing their jobs um, because everything is more efficient and automated and shareholders doing very well out of the extra profits for companies, this is how they would put it, instead you have all workers do less work and they're still able to be paid the same because of that, if you like, automation dividend. Is any of that coherent, do you think, from an economist standpoint, that idea? And of course, I immediately think it sounds great in principle, but how would it work on a kind of company-to-company level? But sort of if you're taking a very macro view, is that a coherent thing to think about?
3: So I think that you have to look at it in terms of productivity and not in terms of automation. The thinking about it in terms of automation will get you in trouble because automation is difficult to measure and even more difficult to predict. In other words, suppose that automation comes in and drives a lot of people's wages down because suddenly technology is substituting for people instead of complementing them. So now wages are going down, and then you're asking, okay, so wages went down. Should we actually make people work fewer hours? Well, that's a double whammy, right? Your wages went down and you can't work as much. But if you look at it through a productivity lens, you say, okay, would making those people work less actually increase their productivity, which would increase their wages and partially counteract the effect of automation. So they could
0: be doing fewer hours for the same productivity and the same wages. I guess that's the model.
3: Well, right. I'm saying that if you, if you don't increase per hour productivity and you restrict hours, if people are paid by the hour, you're reducing uh, pay. Right. Only if people are paid a sort of a fixed, you know, monthly or weekly salary, will that maintain their incomes for less work. But you've also got to think about how these people are getting paid and what, what the, the pay structure is there. As for, you know, automation, there's the question of what automation will do if automation starts actually reducing aggregate employment. And there's a whole bunch of people who are just unemployed in the street. Well, then you might want to cut people's hours or, or days of work just to force companies to sort of overstaff, you know, hire, hire two people to do the job you'd hire one person to do before. And if you want to keep everybody in work, and of course, then there's also the ancillary question of, do we actually want work to be the model going forward of who deserves what in a society? Do we want to go to a universal basic income where people get paid just for being themselves? Or do we want to sort of stick with the traditional industrial age model of those who do not work, neither shall they eat? I think that's a biblical (laughs) quote and a quote from the Soviet constitution. So...
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's it's a reminder. It is like we've almost come back to some of the issues that, that John Maynard Keynes mentioned in the essay that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, which was thinking about how the world would change when we're, we've had all this increase in productivity and he felt we just wouldn't need to work very much. You know, all of these debates about... Automation and uh, the future structure of the economy do make us think about the place of work in our lives, as well as wages. Although I think we're probably still pretty focused on them too. Noah Smith, uh, thank you very much. I hope we get you on the uh, the podcast again. Uh, We we, we've enjoyed uh, we've enjoyed having you, and uh, we'll continue debating.
3: Thank you very much. Really appreciate you having me on. Well, it wouldn't be
0: Stephanomics without some more breaking news on trade wars. Uh, Donald Trump opened a whole new front in his trade wars in the last week, this time against Mexico. Our Mexico economy reporter Eric Martin was on his way, was on a plane from Mexico City to New York when the news broke. Eric, what on earth has happened?
4: Stephanie, it's been fascinating. A really astonishing turn of events last Thursday with this tariff threat. Now, the tariffs don't actually go into effect until next Monday, June 10th. So what's happening now is Mexico has a delegation of the highest level in Washington meeting with the U.S. Trade Representative, with Agriculture, with Department of Commerce, with Homeland Security, trying to convince them to get the president not to actually follow through with this tariff threat. Just remind us what he said, sort of out of the blue. Well, the president on Thursday afternoon said that he plans to impose a tariff beginning at 5% next week and ratcheting up to 25% by October, unless Mexico does more to stop undocumented immigration to the U.S. Now, this issue has been a thorn in the side of the president for years. It's been an irritant, something that he mentioned even in his campaign launch speech in 2015. But this is one of the first times we're seeing a very clear linking of the trade and immigration issues.
0: And you're normally, you're in the U.S. at the moment, but you're normally sitting in Mexico City. How has this gone down in Mexico?
4: Well, it's been an absolute bombshell. Uh, Mexico had just sent the updated nafta nafta 2.0 the us mca to its senate for debate and ratification and in fact the deputy minister of foreign relations for north america was Already scheduled to speak to the press in what was supposed to be a celebratory event about this document, this treaty having been sent to lawmakers. Complete change of plans with the president's tweet. This came out of nowhere. Mexico was not expecting this. There was no warning. We saw a significant drop off in the sell off in the peso on Friday. The currency had its worst day since October. Just a really remarkable turn of events.
0: Uh, And what does this mean for the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement that we're not allowed to say is just like NAFTA?
4: Well, it certainly poisons the well. Uh, This was an agreement that Mexico was not thrilled about. It was a defense of the gains that Mexico had through NAFTA. So there was already some concern about the agreement or thinking that this is not the ideal scenario, but uh, trying to protect the advantages won through the NAFTA process in the early 1990s. This certainly poisons the well and makes it much harder uh, for Mexico and for Canada and frankly for the U.S. to go forward with Trump's agreement. There was already significant U.S. opposition among Democrats in the House and the idea that they would give the president a victory, a political victory, by being able to say that he fixed NAFTA, the problems in the first NAFTA, at a time when he's putting taxes on Mexico – in what one analyst said, is it's really like t- taxing Texas. I mean, Mexico is so integrated with the U.S. economy. People refer to it in a kind of facetious way, but as the 51st state economically. And, you know, to be putting these kind of levies on an economy that has so much integrated production with the U.S. to most economists makes no sense.
0: And I guess if you're looking from the outside and maybe even not, not sitting in the U.S., but sitting in Europe or even China, you know, what does this tell us about President Trump's attitude to trade wars. You know, there was a time when we thought... He'd be very keen to he's keen to have a deal and he just wanted a deal, even if it wasn't necessarily a good deal. Um, that seems to have changed, certainly with regard to China over the last few months. He seems to be a bit nervous of doing a deal that would then maybe play badly on the political campaign trail um, moving on to uh, to the ne- next year's election. Does this tell us that he's just he doesn't mind how many fronts he opens a trade war on? Or do you think this is a specific short term play for Mexico?
4: Well, absolutely. It worsens the outlook for a deal with China, that if Trump is capable of withdrawing from, essentially this is a de facto withdrawal from NAFTA, at least on a short-term basis, to be putting 5% tariffs up to 25% against a partner with whom he has an existing free trade agreement. So the idea that if he's capable of doing this with one of America's closest commercial allies, he's capable of anything in terms of uh, going back on his word or good faith agreements with Europe or with China down the line. So a lot of people looking at the signal that this sends. Uh, and even if this happens in the short term, which is what most economists who Bloomberg spoke with expect, even if this only happens for a period of months or the tariffs only rise to 10 percent, could have a significant impact on the Mexican economy, potentially put an already weak Mexican economy into recession. And that's counter to what President Trump wants in terms of the migration pattern that so much immigration has been coming from Central America. Mexico has not been the problem on undocumented immigration in recent years. But if the economy goes into recession, that increases the impulse or the allure of the U.S. economy, the U.S. labor market for uh, Mexican workers looking for a livelihood.
0: And I guess we should say, I mean, there's a lot of things that President Trump does where there's an outrage that he's not playing by the rules and he's saying things that people in the past haven't said. And then sometimes in retrospect, we say, you know what, he shaped things up and actually he revealed that some things were possible that we didn't think were possible. Is there any chance that this could fall into that category and actually you would see a significant change in illegal uh, immigration into the U.S. from Mexico as a result of this?
4: Well, the concern among analysts is that we've already seen uh, tens of thousands of undocumented immigrants arriving to the U.S. uh, in the current year. And the idea that if the U.S., the world's biggest economy, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, could not stop illegal immigration, what is to make one think that Mexico will be able to achieve that?
0: Well, it's really nice to have uh, the perspective of someone sitting in the U.S., but also with such good insight into what's happening in Mexico. Eric Martin, thanks very much for that.
4: Thank you, Stephanie.
0: Thanks for listening to Stefanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. It's that simple. You can also find me on at My Stephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Lucy Meekin and Jess Shankelman, was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Scott Laman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Be sure to read Lucy and Jessica's article on this topic, which was edited by Brian Swint. Special thanks to Noah Smith and Eric Martin. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.